I would invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther for the first of several passages before us this morning. Esther, chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 11 verses. Esther is almost the middle of the Bible, or it's just before the middle of the Bible, right before the big book of Job and the even bigger book of Psalms. Esther chapter 3, and I will read from verse 1 to 11. Give attention again to the word of God. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast in month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you, people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Says the word of God. Amen. Let's pray again together. We listen to the word again today, O Lord, not only for ourselves, for our land. We would be the light that you've called us to be in our dark nation. We would be equipped by your word, not only for our sakes, but for the sakes of our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow citizens. We are small indeed. We have only the influence you permit us. We do gather here not only for our own sakes, for the sake of our nation. So have mercy on us and upon our land. We seek this for Jesus' sake. 
men. If there was a tipping point in our nation's culture war over homosexuality, other than the Supreme Court decision, U.S. v. Windsor, it was probably the day that our president announced his personal support for same-sex marriage. And I should not underestimate the influence that that event had upon our nation in light of the popularity and powerful influence of President Obama. We've been calling the Supreme Court decision U.S. v. Windsor the tipping point in our culture war. That was when in June of 2013, same-sex marriage was recognized as legal by the highest court of the land for federal government purposes. But almost as significant in terms of popular opinion was what happened over a year before that. When for the first time a sitting U.S. president declared himself supportive of same-sex marriage. You'll remember perhaps that our president by his own profession was undergoing an evolution in his thinking on this subject. When Barack Obama first ran for the presidency in 2008, he declared himself opposed to same-sex marriage. He was in favor of civil unions, but he had a traditional view of marriage, and so he ran for president. During his first term, however, he spoke of his views evolving on this issue. Many had a sense of what that meant, but very few believed that he would publicly change his position prior to his reelection campaign. But that changed when the vice president, Mr. Biden, unexpectedly announced his own support of same-sex marriage on a Sunday morning talk show, generally considered a gaffe by the VP, for his position was then at odds with the publicly stated position of the president. That occasioned a flurry of questions very insistently put to the president. And the president decided in a short space of time to face the issue manfully. So in a hastily arranged interview with Robin Roberts, host of Good Morning America, President Obama, there in the White House, announced his full support for same-sex marriage. Now, whatever you think of our president and his personal character, you have to admit that was a bold step for the president to take in an election year. His opponent at the time, Mitt Romney, declared his support for a constitutional amendment against same-sex marriage. It was far from clear how this new stated position of the president would play out in the election But the president's leadership in this issue was, as it is proven with many other issues, to be proved quite strong. And many in the nation followed him, both in support of him as president and his reelection campaign and of his position. I'm confident that there were many in the nation who were themselves unsure of what they thought of that issue. And they made their minds up with the president. So that it can be said of our president, as is said in the scriptures of numerous kings of ancient Israel, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and made the nation to sin. This morning, I'm particularly interested in one key piece of our president's rationale for his new position on same-sex marriage. It will serve us in this series as we 
take one more occasion to answer the second of the three questions that we've posed. The second of the three questions has been, how did we get here? In May 9th, 2012, the interview I mentioned, President Obama concluded all his remarks by reminding the viewing audience that both he and his wife were, as he put it, practicing Christians. He went on to say, I quote, when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And I think that's what we try to impart to our kids. And that's what motivates me as president. Now, to the extent that Christians themselves could be confused by that kind of statement. The president may have done more harm to the cause of truth by his rationale for his position than his position itself. He was co-opting from Jesus himself and a line, a statement taken from our Lord, support for our society's number one value, that is, tolerance. Of each other's choices and lifestyles, no matter how depraved they may be. This morning, the first thing I want to do with you is to strip the Christian veneer off this societal obsession with tolerance. Then we're going to look at the root issue of this societal obsession with tolerance. And then we'll face squarely what will be the outworking of this societal obsession with tolerance. Would you turn under the first heading, first of all, to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 12 as we seek to strip the Christian veneer off this societal obsession with tolerance. This appeal to Jesus' golden rule, that's become a dime a dozen in this debate. You'll remember the illusion that was made by the ACLU, no less, in their newspaper ad, I cited it last week. They wrote, most Republicans would agree that we should treat everyone the way we would want to be treated. And that the government shouldn't interfere in Americans' private lives. Perhaps you've encountered this in your own discussions on this subject. You've perhaps expressed disapproval at extending civil benefits to same-sex couples. And you're challenged, well, what if you were in their position what would you want if you were they? And you, perhaps, following that line of thought, say, well, I, I suppose I would want rights and recognition for my particular lifestyle. And perhaps you've seen the case closed just there by an appeal to Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. Here's the logic of our president and even those who make no profession at all of faith in Christ. If you were someone committed to a homosexual lifestyle, would you want people to condemn it? If you were such a person and wanted to marry your boyfriend or girlfriend, would you want people to prevent it? Jesus 
tells us we're to do to others as you would have them do to you. And so the answer is clear. Jesus would be opposed to all condemnation of homosexuality and restrictions on marriage. Let's look at that a little bit more carefully under this first heading. We need to see two things about this particular principle of our Lord. The first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus is giving us a very practical and powerful guide for right behavior towards others. This is a saying embedded in that famous Sermon on the Mount. And he's been saying a great deal up to this point, various specific instructions about practical living as his disciples. He sums up a great deal in this pithy statement in verse 12. It's been called the golden rule. And Jesus is giving a guiding principle that has a remarkable ability to give insight into what our duty is. Now, what would make this principle so useful? Well, Simply this, it has an uncanny ability to help us in real world situations sort out what would be the path of love. It does. It's not always easy to know how to respond to others, to deal with others in a loving way. The law of God, the Bible doesn't give you specific details about every possible situation you might encounter. And so sometimes in the complexities of life, we need something that will cut straight through all the the various motives of our own heart, all the various ambiguities of our own thinking. And there's one thing that remains a fairly constant and predictable reality with all of us. We know and desire instinctively and predictably with near universal consistency what promotes our own well-being. We've got a good handle On that, Jesus is therefore in this principle calling upon us to frequently trade places with those we're in contact with and ask ourselves, if I were in his or her position, how would I want to be treated? And when you do that, it can be wonderfully clarifying the path of love. For example, you know something about a neighbor and a predicament they're in. You can ask yourself, if I were them, would I want a phone call? Well, then call them. Would I want prayer? Well, pray for them. If I'd want someone to listen to me and try to understand me, well, then, then do that. I'd want someone to, to respect me. Then render that to them. That's why this is golden. This particular rule its actually something that harnesses a very strong natural drive in all of us to promote our own well-being and actually turns it to the good of our neighbor. Because we're asking ourselves, what would I want if I were that person? And when that question is answered in terms of what we know is for our well-being, then we seek to do that for others. It's a very Practical and powerful principle. Jesus is actually doing something very clever, we might say. He's actually leveraging our desire for kind treatment ourselves. We all desire that. Into a guide for kindness towards others. So let's recognize the brilliance of this principle that Jesus lays out. But let's also recognize, secondly, 
that a guideline for pursuing righteousness is never to be a cover for sin. You notice how Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. That's a way of saying that in this little principle, everything God is saying in the Bible, that's what the law and the prophets references in Jesus' day, everything that is being said in the Bible is summarized rather well by this principle. Now, summaries are very handy, but they're no substitute for the larger material that they summarize. If you're a commando and you have a special mission and as you're riding in low under radar and so on to be dropped for your special mission, you have perhaps the summary of what you're after in your mind. But you also have the details, the very specific details of the plan of action. You want both. Jesus is not saying, hey, you got this principle. You don't have to read your Bible anymore. You don't have to study all the other particulars of the law and the prophets if you have this particular principle. Jesus has been teaching in this sermon the other specifics of right and wrong. That's obvious. He's not discounting the necessity of those things. And this in particular should be very obvious. A summary of the law and prophets can never be used, can never be pitted against the law and the prophets themselves. Which brings us to one particular flaw in our application of the golden rule. Something that we can mistake. Sometimes what we would want for others to do to us Reflects a sinful want. Sometimes what we would want others to do for us reflects something sinful. For example, proponents of euthanasia will often appeal to this golden rule. They'll say something like this. If I were suffering with an incurable cancer or reduced to a state of paralysis for the rest of my life, I'd want to die. Some can very sincerely say that. I would want to die. And so if I would want that in that position, then I can take those steps as a doctor to administer lethal drugs as a form of mercy killing. Now, what's wrong with the logic of that? The logic of that is that according to the word of God, according to the standards of the Bible, it is wrong to want to die. It's that suicide impulse is wrong. It's no better to want to kill yourself than it is to want to kill someone else. It may be understandable, very understandable, that individuals in dreadful circumstances would be tempted to want to end their own life. But that is not a biblical, God-honoring desire. King Saul, children, you'll remember, sincerely wanted for his armor-bearer to kill him. The armor-bearer, if he had taken the golden rule and mistakenly applied it, as we see many around us doing, would have said, well, if I were Saul, I think I would want to be killed. And so he would have run his sword through the king. The armor-bearer had something a little bit better than that. He knew, I can't kill God's anointed, even if he wants me to. 
So this makes clear something that is so obvious it shouldn't have to be stated, but it does. When the golden rule calls for our doing to others what we would want done to us, it does not include the wants that either we or our neighbor might have that are sinful in the light of the word of God. Murderers in the act of committing murder are often desirous of having others join them. Rapists often want for others to conceal their sin. Someone committed to swindling the retirement portfolio of elderly Americans would like in that circumstance for you to turn and look the other way. You don't make the way someone wants to be treated your standard if what they want is sinful. That's neither loving or just. So, the president's use of Jesus' own words to explain his own support of same-sex marriage by its willful ignorance at best, its rank hypocrisy at worst. It's comparable to appealing to Martin Luther King making a case for racism. It's comparable to appealing to Margaret Sanger to make a case against birth control. It takes a lot of chutzpah, indeed, to take words of our Lord right out of the Sermon on the Mount of all things, where the Lord says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, if you were a hypocrite, would you have wanted to be addressed that way? Probably not. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Put yourself in a hypocrite's position. The Pharisees of the day, would you want to be exposed like that? And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus was not doing to the Pharisees as the Pharisees would have wanted him to do. Nothing in the golden rule requires us. This is the point of this first heading. Nothing in the golden rule requires us to accept and embrace sin in others. This parroting of the golden rule by those who support homosexuality is a flimsy veneer. Let's strip it wherever we see it. Secularists like the ACLU, professing Christians like our president, appeal in highly selective ways to Jesus' words in order to argue for our society's obsession with tolerance. As if Jesus was the kind of guy who just lived and let live. It's okay. Who you are, how you are living. Among many blasphemous things to say about the Son of God, that is certainly one of them. So we strip the Christian veneer of off our society's obsession with tolerance. Let's secondly try to identify clearly the root issue of this societal obsession with tolerance. Please listen carefully. We saw a few weeks ago that the final step of societal apostasy is not the sinful perversions 
of that society themselves. Rather, it's that cool, rational approval of such perversions by the thought leaders of society. We've been seeing that that manifests itself most conspicuously in legislation in a nation. We saw that from Romans 1. You remember, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is calling evil good. And when a society does that, not just informally, but now officially, legislatively calls evil good, we're seeing advanced stages of societal apostasy. The flip side of that is also true, and we're seeing that in our society. The flip side of calling evil good is to call good evil. To insist that what is morally upright and honoring to God is itself reprehensible. And here's the particular illustration I have in mind this morning. According to the scriptures, it is a good thing. It's a vitally important thing to be indignant at sin, to call sin, sin, to warn against sin, to expose the sinfulness of sin. According to the scriptures, this is a good thing. This is a necessary part of Christian life and testimony. Ephesians 5 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. This is good to expose sin because it's an act of love. It warns people against what is harmful to themselves. It's good because it's in keeping with truth. It upholds the standard of God's word. It's good because it expresses zeal for God. And for his word, these are all things that the scriptures call good. But our apostate society is increasingly calling those things evil. The words they use for Christians speaking thusly of homosexuality and same sex marriage are words like hatred and bigotry and Intolerance. This call for tolerance, brothers and sisters, in our day is actually a call for silence on the part of Christians. A call that would stifle righteous indignation, would surrender a Christian's prerogative to declare to a sinful world, thus says the Lord. This obsession with tolerance. I want you to see this morning. In seeking to answer the question, how did we get here? It's nothing but the logical outworking of our nation's commitment to two things. And going to the words pluralism and secularism. We are a nation that has come to value these two things and to style ourselves pluralistic and secular as a society. First, what do I mean by pluralism? Well, that's the notion that virtually any religious or cultural expression has equal legitimacy in the United States 
of America, no matter the variety and the variety is quite dramatic, no matter the variety of beliefs and practices, they're all to be equally protected as long as they don't transgress the great utilitarian ethic of achieving the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Pluralism is a live and let live perspective. All worldviews are welcome in this great nation. Now, we've always been the melting pot of various cultures from the beginning. But what it has become in our day is a philosophical commitment on the level of a worldview. No worldviews will be privileged in our culture and no worldviews will be discriminated against. This is a radical experiment. Considering world history on the whole, nations historically have found their strength and unity in a common worldview at their core. But America is seeking to find strength in the very midst of a cacophony of competing and mutually exclusive worldviews. It's a very interesting experiment. That's our commitment to pluralism. Our country is also practically committed to secularism, particularly secularism in our governing bodies. That's the notion that there's supposed to be a neutral referee over this mayhem that is pluralism. That neutral referee is the government of the United States. It's all religious or secular without any religious commitments. Now, of course, from the beginning of our country's history, we believe in something called separation of church and state. That meant originally that there would be no Church of America like there is a Church of England. There would be no one denomination that would be favored by the land. Separation of church and state has come to mean something very different. It's come to mean that religion must be checked at the doors of government. Not only must our nation be neutral in the question of which Christian denomination is the best, it must be neutral about religions in general and all matters of faith. That's why our leaders will claim personally to be Christians, for example, but will not appeal to God's word. They know that's against the rules in their governing as elected officials. From a biblical standpoint, though, I trust you know this. There is no neutrality in matters of religion. Neutrality is nothing more than sophisticated defiance of God. That's what a government that is secular is doing. It's defying God. When you claim to be neutral in matters of religion, you are excluding the claims of God's word. Suppose neutrality in God's eyes is nothing more than rebellion. governing body that calls itself secular is no more neutral than one claiming to be Islamic. They both refuse to acknowledge the kingship of Christ and govern in keeping with his will. Neither is neutral. Now, the biblical model for nations is quite clear in the broad strokes. It's not pluralism. It's not secularism. The biblical standard for societies, what Christ calls the people of God to pray for and to work towards, particularly in the preaching of the gospel, is a whole nation discipled 
brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Top to bottom or bottom to top. It's happened both ways historically. Psalm 2 calls upon the people to be wise, calls on kings to serve the Lord and kiss the son. Gesture of fealty to the Messiah. Psalm 72 calls for all the kings of the earth and their nations to fall down before Messiah, an expression of submission to his will. Psalm 76, Psalm 102, call them the kings of the world to fear the Lord, using the summary of true religion to describe the king's response. They're also invited as kings. They're summoned as kings in Psalm 138 and Psalm 148 to praise the Lord and to give him thanks. set off our nation's commitment to secular government and pluralistic society from what the Scripture holds out as the responsibility of every nation on the earth in order that you and I might see why it is right for Christians to see calls for tolerance of wickedness as a sign of our nation's own particular form of rebellion against God. That's what those calls for tolerance are. Our society was committed to Sharia law. Christians would no doubt be forbidden from speaking against Mohammed. Our society is instead committed to secular pluralism. And so our church is increasingly being forbidden to speak out against Sin. In both cases, that's an outworking rebellion against Christ. So here's the root issue of our society's obsession with tolerance. It's actually a form of radical intolerance of the very claim that is most basic to Christianity. Jesus is Lord over every area. Life and society. So, my fellow bigots, as we will increasingly be labeled, that's where we find ourselves. That's how we got there. You are a bigot today by our society's definition. If you think it's immoral for a man to have sex with a man... If you think marriage should be defined as between a man and a woman, never mind that you have rational and intelligent reasons for your convictions, or even that you express those convictions in a firm but gracious way. If you're not accepting of a man's sexual inclinations and lifestyle, you're a bigot. Even in his day, G.K. Chesterton could say with sarcasm, we call a man a bigot. Or a slave of dogma because he is a thinker who has thought thoroughly to a definite end. So my burden at this point has been to explain why it is you and I will be labeled this way. In a society that is seeking to accommodate any and every worldview under the sun, the primary social value is toleration. That's a relatively modern and uniquely American version of rebellion against God. 
So let's look lastly. Let's try to face squarely. What will be the outworking of this societal obsession with tolerance? Unless God is merciful. I read at the outset from Esther chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. This is a chilling account, as you will know. Of the fate, the plight of the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire. <clears throat> they provoke, <clears throat> excuse me, they provoke the wrath of a high government official, Haman. He makes the argument for their extermination. The argument is their laws are unique. They conflict with the laws of this land. It is not in your best interest, King, to tolerate them. The church in America, if she remains faithful to Christ, will increasingly become a similar provocation to the powers that be. Brothers and sisters, I'm not alone by any means in predicting that calls for tolerance will be turned into actions of intolerance for robust Christianity. Call for tolerance in our day on this issue of same-sex marriage or any other is but the precursor of the coercion of tolerance, which is another way of saying persecution. You perhaps read these Things as I did in the very immediate wake of U.S. v. Windsor, there were some very alarming things said by conservative pundits about the implications for individuals and churches who oppose same-sex marriage. Marvin Alasky, for example, editor of World Magazine, made this observation. Now that the Supreme Court has blessed the gay lobby's tendency to declare anyone who does not toe the line in a, as a straight, consumed with hate, it will seem perfectly proper to take away the tax exemption of churches and schools that stand by Scripture. It will seem proper to deny Pell Grants or other financial help to students attending colleges that stand by Scripture. Pastors and teachers who say anything negative about homosexuality should think through how they'll react if hauled into court. That's already happened in other countries, and it can happen here. Denny Burke wondered out loud, what if a Christian university were to decide to limit its married student housing to heterosexual couples? Will there be any accommodation for this under the new regime? Peter Jones writes, doubtless it will be permissible for a certain time, at least for pastors publicly to read and preach on Leviticus 18, verse 22 and Romans 1, 26 to 28 in the private sphere of the church. Eventually, however, free speech will be trumped. My condemnation of, quote, hate speech. Public lectures or debates in the college campus will be ruled out of order. The tax-exempt status of ministries who speak out on this issue could eventually be revoked for being too, quote, political. Now, some of us might have been tempted to think these were alarmist in their tendencies. But then 
our newspapers seem to be flooded with instances of just these kinds of things. A florist in Washington State is sued by the ACLU and the Attorney General of Washington State for refusing to provide her services to a same-sex wedding. She declined to provide flowers to a male couple due to her religious beliefs. A cake shop owner in Colorado was sued by a homosexual couple after he refused to sell them a wedding cake because of his Christian convictions. A photography studio in New Mexico was sued for declining to shoot a lesbian commitment ceremony. And the Supreme Court of New Mexico unanimously upheld the suit. A T-shirt printer in Kentucky was charged with discrimination for refusing to print T-shirts for the annual Gay Pride Festival. Bed and breakfast owner in Hawaii was ordered by the circuit court to accommodate homosexuals who seek lodging for the night. A lesbian couple, along with the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission, had brought the lawsuit. In Vermont, the owners of a country inn that hosted weddings were successfully sued after the owner indicated to a lesbian couple she was not comfortable providing services to them. They have had to pay 30000 in fines. New Jersey, a church group that owned a camp and rented its facilities for weddings, was ruled against by the New Jersey Division of Civil Rights for refusing to rent its facility to a lesbian couple. The arguments of the defense, quote, that a Christian organization has a constitutional right to use their facilities in a way that's consistent with their beliefs, was not persuasive. And I could go on. I have no doubt. It doesn't seem altogether alarmist, does it? To say that Christians in this coming generation will face new conflicts between their duty to God and their duty to the civil magistrate. And that there will be not just social, but even legal persecution. Robert George is a professor at Princeton University. He's a defender of traditional marriage. He warned well in advance of U.S. v. Windsor. The fundamental error made by some supporters of conjugal marriage, he means by that traditional marriage between a man and a woman, was and is, I believe, to imagine that a grand bargain could be struck with their opponents. Quote, we will accept the legal redefinition of marriage. You will respect our right to act on our consciences without penalty, discrimination or civil disabilities of any kind. Same-sex partners will get marriage licenses, but no one will be forced for any reason to recognize those marriages or suffer discrimination or disabilities for declining to recognize them. George writes, there was never any hope of such a bargain being accepted. Perhaps parts of such a bargain would be accepted by liberal forces temporarily for strategic or tactical reasons as part of the political project of getting marriage redefined. But guarantees of religious liberty and non-discrimination for people who cannot in conscience accept same-sex marriage could then be eroded. And eventually removed. After all, quote, full equality requires that no quarter be given to the, quote, bigots who want to engage in, quote, discrimination 
in the name of their retrograde religious beliefs. Robert George continues, there is, in my opinion, no chance, no chance of persuading champions of sexual liberation. And it should be clear by now that this is the cause they serve, that they should respect or permit the law to respect the conscience rights of those with whom they disagree. Look at it from their point of view. Why should we permit full equality to be trumped by bigotry? Why should we respect religions and religious institutions that are, quote, incubators of homophobia? Bigotry, religiously based or not, must be smashed and eradicated. The law certainly should not give it recognition or lend it any standing or dignity. So I'm confirming your suspicions, many of you. Church of Jesus Christ has every reason to see USV Windsor as ushering in an era of unique and unprecedented conflict between our Christian conscience and worldly authorities. Persecution is in store for those who remain faithful to God's word. Another way of saying this would be to say that USV Windsor signals a beginning of a season of testing for the church. We may actually have to pay a price for being Christians in our land. And the strength of our commitments will actually become very clear in that testing. Here's the thing that's perhaps the saddest to me. This is not just going to drive a further wedge between the church in America and an apostate culture. It's also going to bring divisions within the church itself. Many in the church have ceased to be governed by the word of God. Our differences with them will be magnified and already have. But others in the church who shouldn't know better will make pleas for peace on this issue. They'll say we're not personally supportive of homosexuality or same-sex marriage. But is this really the hill that the church should die on? Do you know the answer to that, brothers and sisters? Do you know the right answer to that question? Any issue which is clearly taught in the word of God is a hill worth dying on for the people of God. And I told you at the outset, one thing that I am grateful about in this particular culture war, this is a fair test. Oh, it's a straight up fair test. There are few issues about which the scripture are clearer than this issue. It's not complicated, not like a lot of other issues that Christians do need to sort out, do need to wrestle with, do need to speak prophetically to in our culture. This one is not that complicated. It's a straight up moral question. We're not willing to suffer for taking an uncompromising position on this, as with any other clear moral issue, then we will fail the test as the people of God. We need to face squarely what is, but for the mercy of God, going to be the outworking of our society's obsession with tolerance. <clears throat> Our president appealed to the example of our Lord in calling for tolerance of homosexuality. Jesus was tolerant of other people's lifestyles, the president as much as said. And his followers should be as well. 
wish that I could ask the president this question. Mr. President, do you think that's why they killed him? They suffer and die on the cross because he was accepting of people and all their choices just as he found them. Is that why he died? Mr. President, you should know better than that. They killed him because they hated him. They hated him because he told them their deeds were evil. Brothers and sisters, you have not had to suffer much for Jesus Christ. And it will be for every one of us disorienting when we finally have to, in ways that can be registered in your bank accounts and checkbooks, for example. But it is not a phenomenon new to the church. It is certainly not one that Jesus has left us unprepared for. We do, after all, follow after a man who was crucified. If the world hates you, he told us, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. Amen. Let's pray together. It is not enough, our Master and King, to be prepared to suffer for you, simply for us to understand certain things. Even the important things in this sermon. You alone can ready us by deepening our love and commitment to you in everyday ways. So, arming us with a clear thinking mind, give us as importantly, deeply loyal heart. Ready us, our Savior, to do anything, to die even for you. Grant us to pass the test as a people in this day that is evil. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.